Welcome, everybody, to the book launch party for Good Comes First. I'm so thrilled to be hosting along with the authors of this great new book. It is launch day, not just launch party day, but the actual launch of the book. It's available. Good Comes First. It's available in hardcover it's available in audiobook and it's available in ebook i've got the ebook and the uh audiobook and i'm just waiting on the delivery of the hardback book but we'd be thrilled if you just chose one of the three options <laughs> and check it out at any time you can go to goodcomesfirst.com and that'll link you right on over to get a copy of the book. The authors are here, S. Chris Edmonds and Mark S. Babbitt. Um, guys, just tell everybody who might be new to you and what, what you've been up to. You've been in business for a little while. Talk a little bit about you know what led up to, to writing this book. So the, the, running, the running joke is that um, Chris <laughs> stalked me until I agreed to do it. So that, that's our story, and we're sticking to it. Kind of a Three Stooges approach. <laughs> oh, Russ, Chris and I had uh, known, for those of you who don't know, Chris and I had known each other for almost a decade on social yeah. media. And we, we got a chance to meet at a culture convention in Chicago where I was speaking and, and, and Chris was attending, and and we ended up, we started a conversation way back then about how leaders were delegating culture to HR. And HR was in no way equipped to, to lead uh, culture change initiatives or, or, or even um, they were so focused on compliance and conformity that how could they create something that was innovative and new and, and structured around values and and so from that conversation, uh, ultimately came good comes first. Although, Chris, it seems like we've been writing for what? Um, we wrote for three years, and it's it's been with a publisher for almost a year. Yeah, it really has. It's interesting as we look back. And, and, and what's been really fun is that the books were printed early. We heard today that um, the printing industry is having trouble with pallets, to put books on, but more important, paper to print them on. So the let's call the supply chain thing is is hitting is hitting you know the publishing industry really hard. So we had ours printed early, nothing on our you know kind of shoulders to do that. It was all our publisher Matt Holt books, which we're very very proud of. But we sent some books out, and one of the books went to Robert Passan who is the CEO of Radio Flyer, a wonderful company. Uh, many of us remember the Red Wagons from our childhoods. That's, that's Radio Flyer. But we interviewed Robert a year ago this month. So this has been bubbling for a couple of years easily. Now, Chris, you, you heard how hard it was to get Mark to sign on to the project. I imagine it was very easy to get Venus Williams to find, you know, a few days and write a 
uh, forward to the book. Talk a little bit about that and how you uh, wrangled one of the all-time great tennis players in American history, really in world history. 23-time, I think, uh, Grand Slam champion, four-time gold medalist. How did you get Venus involved in the project? Well, I wish I could take all the credit, but to be honest, in late 2018, I got a uh, a contact form response that said, I, I've read your book, The Culture Engine. We definitely need to talk because I think my two businesses need your help, signed Venus Williams. And I went, right, your <laughs> Venus Williams. Must be when the other he, Venus Williams, right? <laughs> so I called her and she answered, and I went, holy crap, <laughs> it's actually Venus. And she's completely normal. She's just a sweetheart. And it took a year because of her schedule. She's got four full-time jobs, whatever, two businesses, right? Um, tournaments kind of get in the way of things because we needed her to be really at the forefront of driving this change. Now, they're small businesses, 11, 12, 15 people each, but one's an interior design firm, one an apparel firm. But she says, let's start with the design firm. Let's get our senior leaders in. We did that face-to-face -face in December 2019, and it went great. And while we were there, she said, okay, we need to get my 11 by Venus team started up. So we scheduled a face-to-face -face visit in April of 2020. Well, that didn't happen, but we did it entirely virtually. So the reality is she really came because she's an entrepreneur, wants her businesses to grow, mm -hmm. realized that the culture, as in many organizations, kind of happened by default, as opposed to being intentional. And they did just a great job. She did a great job. So when Mark and I, we had told her writing a new book. And when we reached out to her to ask if she'd do the the forward from her perspective as a client, she said, absolutely. So it was it was very cool. I remember Mark and me on the phone with her, and you know she's out on a tennis court, duh, and it's windy and it's you know there's there's wind noise and it's like that sounds great. Let's emphasize this. Let's I I, I think there are some funny stories here we can we can leverage here. Right. And it was just the coolest thing. Well, you guys have a lot of friends um, who are CEOs and founders of companies who are going to be stopping in throughout the afternoon. Tamara McCleary, um, Nicole Leinbach, Alyssa Page, Matt Holt, uh, the publisher of the book. In fact, um, Paul LaRue, Chris Molkowski and Pete Ruiz. And we'll talk about a little bit about their backgrounds as they get ready to come on. You also have a couple people who couldn't make it, but were good enough to submit videos. And actually, Chris McCoskey is one of those people. And let's take a listen to what she had to say. I'm so excited about the launch of Good Comes First. I was lucky enough to work with Chris Edmonds when I was president of World Kitchen. Using the tools of Good Came First, we changed the culture for all of our constituents, for employees, stakeholders, our customers, our leaders, and we transformed the business from declining to rapidly growing. Our engagement scores doubled. I took the tools of Good Comes First with me when I joined Newell Brands as CEO of Home Solution. They were amazing in helping me quickly build an organization where respect and teamsmanship was contagious and where truth and transparency were a constant. 
In the last two years, my business has grown 50%. And again, my engagement scores doubled. I think you're really gonna enjoy reading Good Comes First. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for putting your years of experience into a tool that we can all use. It's even more important now when we spend less time face-to-face -to, -face to use these tools to build great business cultures. Thank you. Well, that's impressive. And Chris, of course, runs uh, really a multi-billion dollar uh, P&L. She's been a CEO and business leader for a long time at different companies. Talk a little bit about what it, it means to have an endorsement from someone with that resume. Well, it's, it's, it's humbling. It's immensely gratifying. But what's really interesting and very helpful is this culture process is rather involved. It takes a year, 18 months, 24 months. So Chris got sick of me back in the world kitchen days because I was doing executive coaching with members of the leadership team and, and they would acquire new organizations that weren't part of the culture. And it's like, well, how do we merge them? How do we bring them in? How do we steal what they're doing? That's pretty cool. And Chris was really at the forefront of that. And what has been immensely gratifying, and Mark, I know you've had this experience too, is when leaders change to different companies, they take this culture process with them. And it's almost as though they realize, well, I could let a, a default culture just kind of happen, but that's going to be drama ridden and frustrating. Why don't we just stop all that right now? So um, it's, it's immensely gratifying to have Chris and to have her be such a visible, uh, important Fortune 100 leader and driving the culture and having such tremendous benefits, not only to the employee experience, but to results. What a surprise. If people are respected and validated, they kick butt. One of the things that really impressed me about the book is having read a fair amount of HR articles and books over the years, a lot of people talk about company culture and they talk about employee engagement and they talk about driving change and they never really tell you one what the outcome's supposed to look like you're just supposed to know what all these buzzwords mean and then also they never give you the concrete steps on how to get there so it's all very general and it all sounds good but it's very hard to explain to somebody uh, how they would actually do it, whether it's a company you're consulting with or whether it's a CEO or an executive leader. Okay, here's why this makes sense. You guys not only give facts and figures and stats, but you actually have a program that people can read the book and they can understand first what company culture is, what you're getting at, but also these are real concrete steps People don't have to reinvent the wheel or, you know, kind of try and figure it out by osmosis because everybody just pretends, right? <laughs> we know what culture is. We know what employee engagement looks like. Of course, nobody does or they wouldn't be getting it for the most part. Right. So this is really kind of groundbreaking stuff. Talk a little bit about um, what it is that culture means to you and then what it looks like when a company's really got a good culture that's not only giving people respect, 
but is driving results at the same time. Well, Ross, I'll, I'll start by saying it was a condition for both of us, Chris and I, when we sat down to write this book, we did not want it to be yet another inspirational book that went nowhere. And mm -hmm. uh, as you said, full of buzzwords and new hooks and new ways to get people to think about <laughs> the same old things. And and uh, I, I equated it, to, I remember telling Chris, I said, look, here's what it, it can't be. You know, when people leave like a Tony Robbins webinar and they leave the auditorium and they go, damn, I feel good. I have no effing idea what to do next. Right. But but boy, am I fired up. And we we didn't want that to be this. So we set out as we were blocking out the book, we said, OK, well, let's talk about the why. That's the first section. And, and also give examples of companies that are doing it really well and maybe some companies that aren't. And and kind of set the tone. And then the middle section is is the the actual tools, the tactical and practical application of of how to build a good come source culture. And the the last section is is uh, almost um, let's call it the mentoring section, where we we've been through this ourselves, mm -hmm. and we've seen leaders go through this exact process. So we saw the stumbling blocks, the obstacles to success. And, and so we wanted to talk a little bit about that and, and kind of set the tone. And, and um, Chris said, well, first thing, we have to talk about the timeline. Because if any CEO thinks they're going to stand up at a town hall meeting and go, we've just changed our culture. <laughs> we're now going to be good. We're not going to define good, but we're, we're now going to be good. And, and, and everybody I personally goes, don't have to act that way, but right, this is our right. company mission for the outside world. <laughs> yeah. yep. and, and, and as soon as I get done with my town hall speech as a CEO, I'm going to light up a cigarette walking down the hallway when there's signs all over the place saying no smoking, right? So, <laughs> so we, we broke the book down where people would um, understand why, understand how, and then understand the, the, the where, the when, and the what. And, and so hopefully when people are done reading Good Comes First, they know kind of what we know and that mm -hmm. that was that was our goal now the second part of your question and, and chris um you described this better than i do but i'll tell you what culture is to me and and it was the backdrop of the 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 entire book is i want to go to a place every day on the train in the car whatever when when i get off the train when i when i slam the car door shut when i look up at that building I want to know I'm going to walk in those doors and my work is going to be respected and I'm personally going to be respected. And that's what, that's, what's missing in, 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 in many, especially now, you know, we spent the last five years being divisive and we're, we're polarized and we're opinionated and we're not really good at active listening. And am I going to walk through those doors and have to fight with people or, or just feel uncomfortable around people? And, and so that's why we set the tone to be we a, a, a good culture, in our view, is one where a leader expects respect and everybody else expects respect while they're helping drive results. And that's that's the, the tone of, on which the, the, the book is built. So it starts with the CEO, the founder, the, the top executive in the in the company. If they're not buying in, it's it's not going to fiddle it's not going to you know work down through the ranks but obviously one person in a larger organization can't do it by themselves um 
who on the inside do you find is the best person in terms of a head of a department or a leader um, a step or two down to become that culture champion? Is it HR? Is it a separate, you know, organizational effectiveness type department? Is it a business partner? Is it, is it best to have a consultant do it? Is it something, um, that it has to be a, a, you know, a C-suite only, like where, who, who do you, who do you use as your Lieutenant to get that through? If you're a CEO or a business leader? Who, who else, what, what department do you go and say, you're going to own this with me? It's a great question, Ross. And what's important for us to communicate with clients as we engage is this is a senior leadership driven project, mm-hmm. meaning that you cannot delegate it because that never works. Right. And the rest of the organization is going to look to those senior leaders, whether it's a business owner in a shoe store or a sandwich shop or a multinational CEO that is doing a lot of communications globally by, you know, video like this. Right, right. But you can't delegate it. It has to be in the arms of senior leaders because everything they say and do is either going to reinforce what you want or it's going to be smoking down the hallway, kind of conflicting with those defined or formalized values and behaviors. So we're very careful to say, this is yours. Senior leaders are the only ones who are responsible for um, driving the business, for changing incentives, for holding people accountable. And, and so the opportunity is one where if, and, and we're, we're very serious about this, if, if senior leaders are unable to commit to being the role models and champions for this, we say, don't start this. It's not going to be pretty. And it's, right. and it's only going to frustrate people. It's going to frustrate them because it's going to raise their hopes. Right. And it's never going to stick if the senior leaders aren't really driving it. And the whole book is designed around, let's help you as senior leaders build some systems like measuring valued behaviors so that you can get feedback that shows exactly how every formal leader in the organization is perceived by direct reports, by indirect reports, by the customers of of the business, and just see how well those leaders are literally following your lead, modeling the values and behaviors. So we have our first guest here. Uh, Let's let's bring her on. She is a best-selling author of uh, a book for revolutionaries. I, I don't have the title at the top of my head. She's the founder of Blog Her. She's been featured in just about every major publication, I think, in media organization you can find. And it's great to have her here, Elisa Page. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to see you guys. Give us the title. Give us the title of your book as, as well. Ah, well, I can give you the title and show it to you. Um, okay. As all good authors, roadmap. That's it. Roadmap so revolutionaries, <laughs> resistance, activism, and advocacy for all. And I co-wrote it with Carolyn Geran and Jamia Wilson. Awesome! Wow! Awesome! Awesome! So, well, Lisa, we're 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 thrilled to have you here today because, uh, as Ross and Chris and I were talking, we you know, and one of the one of the cornerstones of a good comes first company is use our voice for good meaning that we can't just 
ignore the 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 compelling social issues around us you know um, yeah. uh, inequitable uh, technology and and uh, social issues and gender pay gaps to be specific and we couldn't think of, of of anybody that we wanted to be here more than you so thank you for being here oh thank it's you. my pleasure yeah you know it's funny i just published an article yesterday on the rosie report um where I'm doing some editorial editor in residence work about um, reproductive rights as a business issue. Mm. And I think the points I made in that article are valid for almost any social issue, which is twofold. Number one, we know that consumers now look to companies. I think you mentioned this in the book. They're looking to companies to take stands. They're looking to CEOs. They expect it. And the younger you go, millennial, Gen Z, the more they expect it. Now, Part of this is sad because it reflects a reduction in trust in other institutions in our lives, um, government, the healthcare system, um, me media, education. So part of it is like, oh, it's a shame that people are looking so much to companies to, to make statements and take stands, but we know they are. And the second thing is your employees are people who are looking to their leaders yeah. To, you know, a lot of companies are, are, are talking the talk right now about standing up for employees and their welfare and their rights and their well-being. And they're looking for when and where they choose to walk that talk. And so it's a business issue. All of these social issues are business issues. It doesn't mean every company has to take a public stand on every issue, but you should think about them. It should be part of every executive team's discussion about where and when they will use their voice as a company with a significant platform. It's been interesting, Lisa, to watch some of our big tech companies having, <clears throat> let's call it activists from within their ranks about discrimination, about pay inequity, about unfair treatment, about bonuses paid to people who weren't highly regarded within the organization as leaders. And so it's it's an interesting dynamic because that's a panic button kind of opportunity, but it really does raise, let's call it the hopes of those employees, those folks that are living in that culture to say, don't do evil is one of our founding principles. How can you behave in this way? And, and it's immensely powerful. And this is a complex beast. You've got a big machine going. And yet I'm also reminded of Mark and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago about pay inequity and how Salesforce spent 8.5 million in four months to close pay gaps. They didn't wait six years and right. do town halls. They flat out fixed it. It's that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, they looked at the data at the end of the day, how, what percentage of their overall revenue is eight and a half million dollars. Like, I mean, it's not going to be that simple for, for, yeah, it's a tiny percentage. Um, you know, so other companies, it might not reflect such a drop in the bucket, yeah. but um I think the the what you said about don't be evil, I think that companies are really nervous about the democratization of of everyone having a platform, everyone being able to share. I mean, you always could have given tips to reporters. You always when when I was trying to write a social media, you know, I, I, when I was trying to write a social media policy for our employees at Blocker, I'm like, 
don't say anything in social media that would not be okay for you to tell someone in the restroom of a hotel, you know, or it would not be okay for you to mention, you know, on air, like, you, you know, what's supposed to be confidential, but when, when people don't feel like their companies are doing the right thing, they now have more avenues and they're more easily obtained. And so, I mean, the, the simple answer is to do the right thing, isn't it? <laughs> what, what do we I realize do what... that's not always so simple, but <laughs> what do we you do? You would think, you what would think do? that it could be that simple. What do we do when employees have disagreements on what the right thing is? Let's assume everybody's coming from a place of understanding that there's a problem, but good people disagree on how to get there. And also companies are global, so there's cultural differences among workforces and how comfortable they may feel with companies speaking up about things and their culture and so forth. Where, where, where does a company draw that line where it's like, do we alienate employees? Do we give voice to everybody? Um, do we drive what the opinion should be and let people kind of get on board or go some like there's these are tough choices for organizations sometimes the issues are pretty pretty easy to be sort of on the right side of and sometimes they're not and <laughs> you know good people can disagree and different cultures have different ways of 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 operating when it comes to how they handle these type of challenges well something i thought was interesting from good comes first from the book was this idea that some people may need to lovingly have to go um, you know, and, but it starts with the leadership having, um, knowing what the right thing is for the company, communicating what the right thing is for the company and trying to get people there. And then I thought the conclusion of the book that, um, you know, some people are not going to be able to get there. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that was like, not a lot of people talk about that, but yeah, no. if they disagree enough. And, and you've explained and rationalized and have validated the corporate principle enough, then it's not a fit. Well, and that idea of tolerating bad behavior is a very interesting one because again, if we look at kind of the foundations of the industrial age, it's like, just come in here, do your thing, you know, a repeatable task that you're gonna do a thousand times today and then you get to go home at the end of 10 hours. You know, work, work has evolved since then, but there's a huge discomfort of most leaders to have those difficult conversations with someone who is disrespectful, who lies, who, who you keep coaching and they never fully sign up. And it's like, let them go. Lovingly set them free, but let them go because in a year, they're not going to get better. They're not going to be happier, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and Chris, I'll add to that. Uh, aren't we right now, Elisa, you and I have talked about this. We're in a world where something like vaccinations that has become such a political issue, a social issue, has significantly impacted the workplace. And if you don't want to get a vaccination, but your employer says we're going to do the right thing. We're going to serve the community first. We're going to serve each other first. We're going to keep each other healthy and safe. So to work here, you must be vaccinated. Well, if you feel really strongly about that, 
that employment is not a God-given right. It, it isn't a constitutional right. You can leave or you can be asked to leave. Go, and that's fine. You don't fit in there. You don't fit in there at that moment. You might have been there 20 years, but you don't fit in right now For to a leader. Lovingly set them free. Attrition is your best friend. Let them, let them go. Let them be successful. Let them thrive. Let them be happy somewhere else. But you're not aligning with our culture now, and so you can't be here anymore. And to to the point of people, um, you know, because I I a couple of different times in my life have done consulting, and at the same time, I've never shied away from being public. I've never tried to have two different personas online. Like I'm just one person. And if you want to, you can go find out what I think about everything. And sometimes in strong language and sometimes with profanity, like I, I just, I can't, like, I can't manage mentally manage trying to be multiple people. Now yeah. I've had countless times. This is back in the early aughts when I first was online to today who say, aren't you afraid you will alienate potential customers, potential people who might hire you um, for jobs or consulting? And I'm like, listen, I should be so lucky as to have every person in the world be my potential client. They're not. You, you, no one's total available market is 100% of, of humans. And so if I spend a lot of time trying to mold myself to be someone that everybody vibes with as opposed to, yeah, I'm going to alienate some people and they're not going to agree with me. They're not going to want me around every day. And I probably don't want to be around them either. Like we're not a fit for each other. I'm going to focus on the people who look at what I say and what I think and what I believe and what I stand for and go rock on, you know, they're, those people are out there and I need to find them. And companies can have the same perspective about their customers and their employees the people are out there who are going to look at what you do and say, rock on. And your job should be to find those people. And pull them in. Exactly. So well, well, and to said. not, to not, to not feel, oh my God, I'm supposed to be all things to all people. Cause that's impossible. <laughs> right. You can't be. Hmm. And, and, you know, when you brought up the vaccination thing, it's, I'm going to say something you may be surprised. Like there are people who, for whom there is an actual medical um, uh, allergic reaction, or there are people like my stepdad who's gotten vaccinated, but, um, you know, he's in chemo and his, you know, he's not building the antibodies. There are people who are not building great antibodies. And so do I think that companies, I don't think companies should be rushing to have everybody back at the office anyway, and they should be finding ways to find ways to work with people in whatever can work. Um, so I, I think there are scenarios in which, the loving and, and good thing to do is find the way to keep working together. But what you're talking about is reflective of a mindset that's entirely different. And um, so I think companies should be able to discern and distinguish um, between those things and come up with flexible solutions that, that and still achieve the culture fit. I love that you said that because somebody who's been working remotely and extremely productive and a extremely good contributor to their team for a year and a half or something, and their immune system is compromised, so their doctors advise them not to take the vaccine, or they believe they have natural immunity because they already had COVID, 
you could uh, you could say okay that person could just work from home and continue with that if they are able to maintain the same level of communication and productivity do you guys think though that having too making too many exceptions if you're trying to have an in-person team making too many exceptions ultimately means you don't have a cohesive team because ultimately everybody's kind of kind of want to not have to commute and make their own schedule and things like that. I mean, it's a, on one hand, it seems like a very fair thing in the abstract, but knowing people there's, there's going to be jealousies and, and, and different other issues brought up. I think if you're a CEO and the statement that everybody's going to want to get rid of their commute and not, I mean, if all your people don't want to come into the office there's something you need to work on there. You know, mm -hmm. I went for the first time, I've been extremely conservative about COVID. Um, and la on Labor Day weekend, I went to, I spent my first night outside my home for the wow. you know, in 18 months. And I went to Monterey, which is driving distance for me. And I went to an event which had extremely um, a great security safety protocols in place. Mm -hmm. I felt very safe. And I engaged with both people I hadn't seen in two years, but also some new people. Like I hadn't really engaged with new people in person in 18 months, right? Mm -hmm. And I was, it was invigorating and it was exciting and I'm already working on a project with somebody. And I thought this is what, C like CEOs of really big companies who made blanket statements about how only people in the office really care about their job. Um, this is what they think life is like every day in the office when it's not. It, it, this is this is the exception, not the rule. Most days in the office, you're gossiping, you're doing busy work, you're you're distracted. You you how many hours of actual work? I mean, they've done studies on this. The amount of actual work people get done. But CEOs imagine that every they talk about serendipity and creating and innovating. And the first thing I think is your employees are really thanking you for diminishing the work they've done this last 18 months to keep it together and to keep everything going in the most difficult of circumstances. And when you say you can't really be effective unless you're all in the office together, it's like a big fuck you to the people <laughs> who've been working their asses off. And I'm really offended by it on any employee's behalf. That's one thing. But the second thing, it tells me you don't really know what it's like day to day in an office. And you imagine yeah. there are all these sparks of like <laughs> exciting engagement. And, and to me, it gives <laughs> it, but it is actually, it's, it's so a signpost of what you could do with your employees, yeah. which is say, let's do, let's plan these moments of spark and creativity. Let's let people do their thing um, more effectively and more productively and more efficiently, and then actually make a plan for bringing people together to create that spark and creativity on a basis that you decide, a time basis, an event basis, a project milestone basis, whatever it is, and make events for your employees that are as fun and exciting as you know the event I went to that was. I mean, that's where I would go, but that takes effort. It's a lot easier to say, oh, we only really innovate and create when we're all together. It, it, again, I'm just mind blown by that statement after right. the year and a half that all your workers just went through. Right. Unbelievable. Right. You should be grateful that you're still in business. <laughs> okay, end rant. Slash. Okay, thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Um, it's great to meet you and talk with you. And of course, thank Mark you, and Chris uh, know you very well. Blog Her, the founder and... The book again, 
the roadmap for revolutionaries. Check yes. it out, Elisa Page. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Thanks Elisa. Guys. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you. Bye bye. Let's move on to one of the leading influencers in the world of retail, Nicole Leinbach. She's also a best-selling author and the founder of Retail Minded. Nicole, welcome. Hey guys, thanks for having me. How was the Lovely. green room? Well, it was great. I highly enjoyed listening to Elisa and, and the three of you as well. And I want to congratulate Mark and Chris on a fantastic book. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm excited. You, in fact, have had a recent face-to-face um, -face experience with ASD. Um, yes. Huge, huge, huge not only important retail conference, but a conference that you've helped build over the years. And uh, was that a similar experience to Elisa's kind of the, re the live reconnection again? Well, she used the word invigorating and I would agree. So the ASD market week is held biannually in Las Vegas twice a year, for those of you who aren't familiar, and it supports the consumer goods category of retail stores. So this is a huge trade show with, you know, traditionally well over 40,000 attendees. And we were really excited to see nearly 30,000 join us this past August. So it just shows that business leaders, decision makers, they're ready. They need these live experiences um, because this is what brings connectivity and also communication. And that's really a lot of what I was going to share today was about just that, that communication, right? We live in a world of um, accessible communication, but and your book delivers such great communication strategies and tactics. And so I was like, you know, this really resonated with me was that that buzzword, if you will, communication, uh, particularly in the retail world. Well, Nicole, let's talk briefly about the retail world specifically. Mm -hmm. We we keep hearing, and I'm gonna hand, I'm gonna I'm gonna load a gun and hand it to you, but we keep <laughs> yeah. hearing so much about this labor shortage thing. <laughs> yep. But then we see companies like Five Below, a retailer mm -hmm. that throughout the pandemic was opening new stores, not shuttering stores, not going out of business. They have a talent pipeline go just flowing out the door. Yep. People, most of them have worked retail in other places. They don't seem to have a labor shortage. So Chris and I have been prone lately to say we don't have in a lot of areas, a lot of companies, we don't have a labor shortage. We have a respect shortage. We aren't treating our people well, so they don't want to come back to work for us. What, with that loaded gun in hand, what is, <laughs> what's your perspective on that? How, how, how are people within the retail industry finding mm -hmm. good people to support their brands? Yeah, kind of to reinforce what you just said, Mark, Dollar General, so similar in the price point category of Five Below, has just announced um, a huge influx of store openings coming in the year ahead. So that tells us that, you know, there's not just closures, but there's actually a positive growth for some merchants. Now, granted, it's not just about labor force there. That also has to do with um, supply, demand, price points of products and so forth. But narrowing in on those labor workers, right? So I like to look at them as our frontline employees to connect with customers. And those, did you know, actually 70% of the global workforce is considered a frontline employee. And this isn't wow. just from retail, this crosses into hospitality, healthcare, those people that have direct correspondence, we hear that word frontline all the time and during COVID, right? 
your frontline essential workers, if you will. But frontline crosses categories, including in retail, like the grocery stores, for example, during COVID, those are retail frontline employers, right? And so, Mark, to your point, it's really about the respect those retail decision makers who are identifying ways to positively connect with their frontline employees through respect um, are really seeing a lot of momentum and growth and positivity in their own reward. In other words, their sales, their customer satisfaction, their online review sites, they're gaining from people. It's a true domino effect. And, you know, I think everything starts with communication because communication begins with the customer journey, identifying through their own research, where do I want to go to shop, right? Through communication, whether that means reviewing Google, online review sites, even having a conversation with a friend, communication will lead them to their next step, okay? So communication creates conversation. It also creates commerce. Communication leads to commerce and commerce is in fact retail. So if you look at retail and the business of it from a communication perspective, I think this is where it all begins. So going back to your respect point, Mark, you look at your top tier managements, your CEOs, right? And then you bring that down to your executives and to your VP level, your vice presidents, down, down, down. All of that comes with respect coming up here, pushing downward. It has to get to your frontline employees in order for the momentum to truly continue. It's like that game telephone we all played when we were kids, right? <laughs> and I've actually had this conversation in person, going back to physical experiences, that it's really fun to actually challenge yourself to do that, that good old telephone conversation again, because almost always it does change a little bit. And part of that comes from humor. People want to try to be clever or funny. Part of it comes from misunderstanding. Um, but the reality is, is there's going to be roadblocks in the customer journey always. But what we shouldn't have roadblocks in is your frontline employee understanding to your top level delivery of communication. There needs to be an avenue of connectivity for them to have dialect and to feel as if they can both share. And that needs to also come with um, strategies for how to do that. A lot of frontline employees do not have emails within the companies they respectfully work for. But yet, how can they share their insight with the decision makers who are identifying the communication of the entire business direction? So, you know, there's a lot of layers here to think about what do you do? Um, and, you know, again, I go back to that word communication. It comes right back around to the need for enhanced communication. I always say there's five C's of communication that frontline employees need to respect and understand but those are equally needed by your top tier, right? They have to be equal. Nobody is more or less important when it comes to this. And the first is to be clear. And I'll go through them again, but clear, concise, correct, courteous, and consistent, okay? So if you're clear, it means that there's truly clarity to what it is you're saying. Game and telephone. Sometimes it's not always clear, right? So again, humor or lack of understanding switches directions. You need to have clarity in what it is, whatever it is you're communicating concise. We are busy people. Our attention span is very short. There's a reason we scroll through social media without ever stopping because our habit, our human nature at this point in 2021 tells us to just keep going until we feel like hitting pause. So we have to give people a reason to hit pause. But with that also comes the reality of being concise. Do not go on and on and on and on like I am right now. Instead, <laughs> you want to make sure that you are actually delivering communication to customers with a, con with a conclusion to it. So they get it. It's clear and it's concise. Capture their attention. Clear, concise, correct. Correct really is your accuracy 
I'm actually literally talking about your grammar, your punctuation, the things that sometimes often, because we're fast, we overlook. So make sure things are actually accurate. Even your store hours, your frontline communication, they need to know, well, what are our store hours during the holidays versus other times of the year, right? How does this vary? During COVID, there was a lot of change in schedules. So having clarity across all the touch points on a customer journey, that would include your online review sites, your email, your URL, homepage, Facebook, everything. Clear, concise, correct. And then the courteous. I use the word courteous, but really, what's your brand tone? So good comes first, but good only comes first if you've identified what good looks like to your business, right? So identify what courteous and good, so to speak, means to you and your brand and your business. So make sure, make sure that everybody across all levels of your business understand that. And the consistency is that fifth piece because you have to be consistent in these efforts for it to truly trickle down to your frontline employees. Again, they make up 70% of our world's global workforce. Um, and for that to reach the consumer and then just, just keep the dollars moving. I mean, seriously, this is what keeps everything positively flowing is that communication, understanding and the push forward to keep it all thriving and healthy. We're celebrating the launch of Good Comes First. It's the brand new book from Mark Babbitt and Chris Edmonds. You can get it at goodcomesfirst.com. And we're talking right now with Nicole Lineback, the founder of Retail Minded. One of the things that I've noticed like from companies that seem to have frontline employees who are really good at customer service and just giving a positive message is the management team tends to treat those employees like their internal customers or if it's hospitality like their internal guests obviously they're not going to be treated the same way that a, a customer is paying a million dollars or a guest in the presidential suite but the idea is you model the same behaviors. You want them to respond to a question right away, call back a customer within a couple of hours. You do the same thing if you're in HR or you're, you're in uh, you know, another de internal facing department. Have you guys seen that? And is that a part of what makes a company um, good, so to speak? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I see it all the time. I'm sure Mark and Chris, you guys do extensively in all your research. Retailers, you know, they have to have an understanding of their consumers to then, you know, position the best employees to interact with them. So data tells us, I mean, data literally is that right. precise now. Um, what category do they fall into in terms of demographics? How old are they? What's their preference of communication? All of those things help internal um, barriers that then become, you know, that are achieved for them to communicate and be more efficient in their efforts. Well, and I think about Mark and I were laughing about this recently because I have a tendency as Mark does that when we engage with somebody in an environment, a could be retail, could be hospitality, could be restaurants, et cetera. So I was on an email thread with a customer service rep of an organization that I, I really support. And she's been there a couple of years. And I said, so tell me what it's like to work there. You know, what's, what's the culture like there? And she went, bam. Now, as I say, bam, some of you are going, oh, no. What did she say, right? <clears throat> well, she couldn't have been more effusive about how cool it was, about how well she was respected, about how 
the information she has is current, so she can be confident that she's giving customers the right information. She can make a mistake and go, oops, and have to call another department and go, sorry, I kind of committed you to this. But she said, this is the most coordinated company that I've ever worked for because I feel like they really care for me and they're willing to let me grow and they're willing to let me make mistakes. That's not common at all in, in many businesses around the globe. It was really cool. I love that. I had a really cool interaction at a retailer probably 10 years. No. Oh my gosh. 15 years ago. Now I think about it, but guess what? I still talk about it and it tells me that the communication, the experience was so positive. And it was at a Trader Joe's. We've all heard of been Trader Joe's, been to Trader Joe's. And I was checking out. It was a couple days before the new year. And I had flowers and wine and all these yummy foods. And of course, he's like, oh, you're going to have a big bash, right? And long story short, it was actually for my father's memorial service. And he, you know, rather than I just said, oh, you know, my father just passed, but we're celebrating his life. It was for a celebration of life. He just, you know, said, I hope you have a beautiful evening. I'm sure he was great. Man. Well, you know, something that he might say, well, right. little did I know, he also rang a bell under his little the checkout area. And somebody came with like three different choices of flowers. And they said, we'd love for, for you know, you to celebrate him with these flowers at the party. And I just thought it was so subtle and yet so sweet. And, and it was so memorable. I've told so many people this way, thousands, because I stand on stage in thousands. And I think to myself, wow, Trader Joe's just maybe spent $15 in flowers that afternoon, but they've gained so much more. That type of marketing and word of mouth you know, effort went so much further. Huge, huge. And that's, Trader Joe's is known for offering kind of authority to their yeah. frontline staff to do stuff yeah. like that. Really cool. And giving them the power. So the other takeaway there is that that frontline employee had the power to make that decision. He yeah. didn't have to ask anyone. This was a real-time decision 15, almost 20 years ago now, that said, I'm making this decision. I'm, I'm spending our company's dollars to do this. And I think that's, for me, the real takeaway. The frontline as a thought leader, if you will, like it's more yeah. than just momentum. But it was, wow, you, you, put, you positioned your hourly employee to make decisions. Guess what that does? That gives that employee so much confidence and enthusiasm to want to support that brand they're working for respectfully even more. Yeah. Well, Nicole, I'll share with you. Um, my mom is in the waiting room. Hi, mom. Um, she, uh, we, we had a chance to take her to Coors Field on Sunday to watch a Giants game. Yes, the Giants won, which is the important thing. <laughs> You're in but, Colorado. Wait a minute. You're in Colorado. It's not the Rockies game. It's the Giants game. It just happens to be in Colorado. So there we go. So so we after the game, we had a great day. And and it struck me this morning as as I was writing a blog post that when my mom was telling her friends and her relatives and my brother and sister about the day i recalled at, at, af, after she described the day and how much fun we had the last sentence in the description of the day was is and everybody was so nice there and she said that four five six times in the last you know x number of hours but that was her impression of of ushers and uh, you know security people and concession people and cameramen and and i mean they can't do that they can't act 
in that way unless they're enabled by leadership, yeah. right? I, I mean, even the cameraman who helped my, my mom get a, a foul ball said, I'm not supposed to do this, but here you go, right? So, I mean, he, he felt empowered in that moment to do the good thing, the right thing. And, and I, the lesson from that is very much like what you just described about Trader Joe's. What if we, as leaders, as organizations, gave permission to do the good thing, the right thing, the nice thing, exactly. and, instead of being so uh, autocratic and, and such old white guys that, that think we have to be in control of everything? What, what if we relinquish some of that control and let our employees show our consumers that much respect? It's like, I love that, Mark, because I studied data a lot in analytics in the business of retail. Data should be automatic. Data should be so, you know, automated, if you will. Humans should be authentic. You know, they're the ones who have the flexibility to change. You know, data is reactive to what's being generated. Humans should be reactive in an authentic emotion to what's being generated in the real life. So I think for sure that comes with good being first. Well, and that's a powerful kind of mindset for leaders, whether they're thinking about how am I creating an environment where my my people can be authentic, even to internal customers. Mm -hmm. That may not be a mindset that leaders all have. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, I hope you guys had fun at the game, even though, you know, it was at the Rockies. <laughs> <laughs> the Giants they, won six to two, Nicole. That's all that matters. In the beautiful city of Denver, Colorado. That's right. <laughs> and, and we, the, we're we veterans there there now. We, we, we share season ticket holders, but it was my mom's first visit. And, and again, she couldn't get over how beautifully maintained the park was and, and how clean it was and how nice everybody was and, and a very similar, actually, to, to Oracle Park in San Francisco. The you know same designer, same management company. It it's no accident. It's no accident that that she was treated as well as she was in in it with a Giants cap on and a Giants T-shirt on. I mean, Giants jersey. Yeah. Yes. Well, that is actually really nice to hear. I'm happy to hear that. I've noticed here in, in the New York area, because when I was growing up, it always seemed like ushers and anybody at the stadium was rude. Like everybody was rude from the that people. That was their job. Park, right. <laughs> and as the price of tickets has gone up and up, like now it's gotten ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. They are much nice. Each time the tickets go up, it seems like the people who work there get nicer. Yeah. <laughs> so because you have a, you have a lot of options. Um, and you have the option to stay home. You have the option to watch it on your phone. You have the option to watch some game cast on your computer. Like there's a lot of different ways you could spend your time and your money. And I, I think there, there's something to that too, that like, if they're not providing a premium experience, why do I have to go? I don't have to go to the ballpark to be insulted. I can watch it on a big screen in HD, right? <laughs> so it's like you remember that they were so nice. I want to go back to the ball to the ballpark. I want that experience. Yeah. I well, want somebody to we're you know being paid more as the right. prices go up. Are the employees being paid more? I, that I don't know. <laughs> I'm <just> curious. <laughs> money funny talk. question. I, I, and, and, I, and I think it's funny, Ross, that you're saying um, people in New York are nice. So that's, I mean, that all by itself is, 
Yeah, that's is, a shock. It's always you know, still a shock. Yeah, that's, I mean, you, I remember, you, I remember as a little kid, the late seventies, from like the late seventies to the early nineties, it was, uh, it, it was a rough city, and it was you, you got to be on guard. Yeah, it kept you on your toes. Well, thanks so much, Nicole. It's great to meet you and chat with you, and uh, thanks for joining us. Yes, so great to meet you, Ross, Mark, and Chris. Really proud of you. You guys nailed it. Love the book. Thank, Thank you, Nicole. Nicole. Thank you so much, Bye. Nicole. Bye. Wow. So good comes first. We've had a couple of great guests so far. Again, you can get the book on Amazon. You can go to goodcomesfirst.com, find out all about it. Um, we're talking with the authors, Mark Babbitt and Chris Edmonds. What's a funny story uh, or something that happened along the way to writing or publishing or promoting the book that you'll always remember or that you're comfortable sharing that, you know, it's just something that surprised you because it's always a tough process getting, getting a book together and, and getting it out there. Well, um, you, you might, you might, you might've, um, you might've heard of it. This the pandemic thing happened right in the middle of the manuscript. <laughs> and, and no, it's not funny. But we we were almost done with the book, and and we spent a great deal of time talking about how leaders had to adapt to more hybrid or, or remote working places, and and how um, racial inequity was going to become this huge issue, and and the, the, the leaders needed to start you know nip this stuff in the bud because you can't be surprised by it, and then the pandemic happens and BLM happens. And and the political situation here in the U.S. happened, and and we went well. There there went you know forty thousand words because <laughs> it, it's already here, and so not funny at all. But I will tell you this, and Chris, I, I think you'd agree, it made the book better because it it all it all of a sudden wasn't um, a a future of work story. It was a culture leadership story and and uh, hopefully more inspirational than than just you know don't do this and look out for that it was no it's already here let let's work with what we got and let's let's be better human beings because of it yeah i i feel like it's another thing that takes the book out of the theoretical because you're talking about issues that everybody is dealing with right now i i mean it's not well, culture, and this is, no, we're all dealing with working issues with the pandemic. We're all de dealing with societal issues. We're all dealing with technology and, and the changes that that brings, positive and negative. Um, there's so much of the book that just reads like, this is the book for our time. It's not the, you know, what they've been teaching for 40 years it's you're leaving the industrial age not only in terms of what makes a good culture but in terms of actually facing the reality um I, i'll just say this before we get to our next guest i i feel like with work there's been a lot of sort of not acknowledging that things have changed right we still like career centers still treat students like they're going to make the decision of what they're going to do for the rest of their life. Like employers talk to you as though, you know, you're going to work for this company for 40 years and like that world doesn't exist anymore. That social <laughs> pact compact has been broken for 20, 
to 25 years. So, you know, what you're talking about is like really redefining the relationship in a lot of ways to let's get the most out of what we have in this moment in time with our team and our employees. And then they may end up staying for reasons different from why they stayed at a job in our parents and grandparents generation. Yeah. What, what yeah, do you yeah. think about that? I, I would say it's absolutely true. And it's one of those things that what, what we know we're doing with good comes first is really challenging established leadership mindsets. And it means that if you're going to be able to, I mean, you can, you can wish that the pandemic didn't happen and you can wish that the negative impacts on businesses, large and small and families and society didn't happen, but you're, you're not going to be positioning the business or your leaders for success. And, and we talked a lot about these young kids. Now we're worldwide guys. I, I, I know that. And We've got Gen Ys and Gen Zs coming in who've, who've got very different perspectives of what work can be for them. And they've got skills and they've got opportunities and they've got problem-solving skills that I never imagined would happen in this brain. So how do you tap those? How do you make your business attractive to, to folks that are wired different than maybe you know, my bosses were, or even I was as a boss. It's it's an interesting, wonderful opportunity because we hope we're bringing leaders into this conversation to say autocratic, old school, my way, the highway. It's not relevant anymore. It's not working. It never really has worked, but it's certainly not working now. All right, let's bring on the publisher of Good Comes First. He's Matt Holt from Matt Holt Books and the Ben Bella uh, Books. Matt, welcome. Great to Thanks. see you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you chose Good Comes First as the very first book that you published for your for your new imprint? Uh, I think it was one of the first, if not the first book that we signed. It didn't come out first, but it was definitely mm. in that first batch. Yeah. Yeah, what? Why? Why? Yeah, I was just going to ask that. But let the author ask. <laughs> There's no turning back now, Mark. <laughs> I think it was some of the discussions you had, I had just left a publishing company where I was at for 23 years, where I worked with Chris before and started uh, this new imprint with a friend of mine. And I was just looking for good projects and it was like oh i know chris i met mark through chris and i like them both and you know it's it's not rocket science a lot of businesses publishing not excluded are relationship businesses so you like to work with people that are nice that are smart and do what they say and uh i had a really nice experience with uh chris before so it was a pretty easy decision we're going to get to Paul LaRue in just a, a couple of minutes. Matt, um, when somebody's looking, somebody such as yourself is looking at a business book, obviously their business books written by celebrity CEOs and, you know, sports executives and generals who are going to give you their take on leadership and things like that. Um, but what beyond the sort of the celebrity author, what do you, what do you think makes a good business book? What do you think, um, and specifically, like, what stood out to you about about what Chris and Mark um, are, are preaching here today? 
So I'm now one of the old guys in the room. I don't think I'm the, I'm probably still the youngest person or close to it. I was told. What's your was, point? What's your point, Matt? <laughs> I, really know. I, I ramble, but I was told early on in my career uh, in my first publishing job out of college in San Diego that uh, the publisher or the owner said, do you know what a good business book is? And he said, it's one that sells. So that's right. And that's looking at it from a, from a right, perspective. Right. But I mean, sales are an indication that people find value in the book and that, you know, my, my feelings generally in signing an author or author group is it's, it's, it's going to sound super simplistic, but are the people nice? You know, the world, the life is too short to have an asshole to work with. Or <laughs> asshole, so, right, right. You know, do you like the people that you work with? Are they experts in their field? Is there, from what I can tell, a market in that kind of information? And, yeah. um, you know, it was, it was an, it's an interesting book. It's um, more human than a lot of business books. And um, I'd like to guys, and I thought, uh, let's, let's give a run at this. It's uh, something that I don't see a lot of in the business space. Um, and it'll help people. And hopefully it'll make uh, Chris and Mark billionaires someday. <laughs> and in turn, well, and Matt, I've got I've to praise you for, for not only your kindness, but your trust in us. But there were a, a couple of moments with the pandemic kind of happening where we said, Matt, this should be a pandemic book and a post-pandemic yeah. book. And yeah. we ought to be able to leverage this. And you said, companies need this. Leaders need this. It's going to be an important concept for decades. It's not just about COVID. Yeah. And I was, I was very gratified to realize, like, we didn't have to do another turn, right? Another left turn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the beginning, it was interesting because we were all in this together. And, you know, I moved out of New York City I'm in Nashville now, but I went from commuting two hours a day on the subway to a corporate office for, you know, 20 years to basically I'm in my bedroom. <laughs> I'm in the little kind of office bedroom area of my house. And it was, um, you know, it's, it's, we're all kind of figuring out what this world is going to look like through COVID. Yeah. None of us figured it would last this long and continue to last this long. But what I did see was I saw a lot of, panicked authors, a lot of people that were speakers or consultant trainers that weren't interacting with clients face-to-face. -face. So I would say that first couple months, every proposal I saw was COVID-related or virtual. How do you survive in a virtual world? And those to me, while I'm not going to downplay COVID at all and the you know horrible impact on many people's lives, this isn't a COVID book and not every book needs to deal with it. It's, it's a matter of fact, it's happening. It's still going on, but I think those are kind of blips, um, blips in the publishing landscape over time. Matt, we appreciate your belief in us, man. I want to hear you play some guitar. The music portion of our book launch. Yeah, well, it's a party. Come yeah. on, Chris. I've got my CSA farmer guy going. Where are you? I've got your bag of turnips here. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> well, no, Chris, this Chris is, is, is going to send me a tambourine so I can do Mama Cass over here in the corner. And while he's <laughs> that's playing, that's the truth. <laughs> this is a very cool drive pedal, which will make all of us deaf in a matter of seconds. So I'm not going to go there. Well, you should get your co-author a little star. If you've never picked up a guitar before, Mark, it's very therapeutic. Uh, 
little acoustic guitar, pick up a Taylor. I'm, I know Bob Taylor well, and it's a great company. Um, pick up a, you know, three or $400 guitar and uh, you'll be on your way. It's a really great therapeutic activity. So, so that's what baseball's for. And uh, <laughs> I have, and, and Chris, uh, shortly after we moved to Colorado, Chris and my wife got together and decided that my then 12 year old needed a Taylor guitar for Christmas Nice. And to start taking lessons, so I'm living vicariously through Chris and JW, who's learning to play. So, well, um, a friend of mine has a very popular YouTube channel, Marty Schwartz, Marty Music, Marty's San Diego brother. guy, another San Diego brother. Uh, it's great. It's a lot of free stuff, and uh, I think what's great about COVID, uh, uh, if there is anything great, is it's allowed people to have some time to pick up some things to do that they haven't done before. When I, before I started at Ben Bella, I was at uh, John Wiley and Sons and we had the, uh, the dummies, four dummies books. <laughs> and I think everybody during COVID was like, I need to learn how to beekeep or raise chickens or whatever. Make sourdough uh, bread. Sourdough bread. So that's been a nice thing where people can pick up something new and, uh, and, and kind of, not be a slave to their career. Yeah, wow. exactly. What, what well, do you think, Chris? I, let me, if P you don't mind, tell a, us? A, a, go a ahead, compliment. Mark. I, I, uh, you know, we, we, uh, Chris, to say we were nervous about about selling good comes first because we knew it wasn't the traditional business book. It wasn't Lee Lee Iacocca saying, you know, talking about everything he ever did right and never talking about everything he did wrong, and <laughs> and. We, we knew it was different yeah. and we emailed you the proposal and rather than go through six months of hoops, you immediately said, we need to talk. Let's, let's get on a zoom call yeah. and let's get this done. And it seemed like Chris, uh, help me out a week or two later, we, we, we were working. We together got a deal. And, and that yeah. was that was not my experience with the publishing world before. Yeah. And, and so uh, tell us about your personal culture if you don't mind cuz I think it'll help inform the the people that are that are watching today about about your personal culture and how you left Wiley to yeah. to kind of work your way and and to be your guy not somebody else's guy. You are a consultant, are you? You're like <laughs> <laughs> Um I love John Wiley and Sons. I was there a long time. I, I still have a lot of amazing friends and former colleagues there. It, I never thought I would run the band. I mean, I'm a first-generation college kid. You know, my parents didn't go to college. I grew up in San Diego, which is not known as the publishing mecca of the world. Um, so I just kind of worked. I love publishing. I got out of business school at San Diego State. I, I kind of bopped around and eventually ended up at Wiley and then moved to New York City. It's a great company. It's a big company. It's, you know, a $2 billion company publishing in the business space in the in the trade or the bookstore space. I don't know, 600, 700 books a year. So um, I love publishing. I love editing and working with authors. And it just my job had become more of a general manager kind of putting out fires and I don't know if you've ever managed big groups of people, but it's not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> it's pretty no one, complicated. No one ever asks how you're doing. It's always like, here, fix me. Um, 
So I, I know Glenn Yefeth, the founder of Ben Bella. I've known him for many years and he's a former consultant and started up this small publisher uh, with one book just because he loved books and they had sold the consulting firm. It was Index, CS, CSC Index, I think it's called. Wow. Um, so it's, you know, when I told Glenn I was moving over, I said, I don't want to do PowerPoint decks. I don't want to convince people that don't like publishing why publishing means something. I don't want to manage a bunch of people. I don't want to have a bunch of people reporting to me. I want to just do what I love to do. And he was like, great. And also we're virtual, so you don't have to live in a thousand square feet apartment in Brooklyn. You can live in Tennessee and Mexico. You can live wherever you want. So it's a very, um, I've got a group, uh, three women that I work with, marketing, editorial, and design, and we're a really tight-knit group. Um, and the rest of Bimbella is all helping and servicing our authors. And it's just, it's a very transparent, author-friendly um, culture. I think uh, Badmouth Wiley at all, and I would never, but it's similar with bigger publishing companies where, you know, they talk scale and process and a lot of efficiencies. And um, sometimes by doing that, because you have so many things you're putting through the process that you squeeze out a little bit of the humanity or your just very, your rigor around what you can do with a book. And um, we just don't have that. We're small. We're, we're independently owned. We, we have a little bit longer timelines. We just, we try to say yes as much as we, once we say yes to a book, once we say yes to publishing a project, we partner with our authors and we try to keep saying yes as long as we can. Yeah. Well, well, glad you said you. yes to this. This is this is a pretty awesome book. Okay. And okay. I, I'm loving it so far. And you can you can check it out at goodcomesfirst.com. Uh, I also noticed that you guys are wearing different type of shirts, it looks like, but they both have Good Comes First on them. Is, it, is there merch available for sale? Or is that yeah. just for the uh, just for the co-authors? For, for no, the, I we're, found, we're only I found this a, is just for us. <laughs> we, we did buy Could some be the next and, great line of clothing. I know. <laughs> we, got them, we got them to an embroiderer who's 10 minutes from me up here in Northern end of denver but we do have a merch shop but maybe later okay we've got to sell books first <laughs> all right that's yeah. keep the focus where it needs to be very smart yeah you you Matt, can't see gotta, her but my wife was wearing her green good comes uh first shirt t-shirt right now in the room awesome yeah she's brilliant matt i gotta tell you your entire team has been phenomenal just very oh, flexible yeah, very right. service oriented we've we've had we've been spoiled rotten Good. That's good and to we hear. Can't thank you and them enough for believing in us. So uh, thanks for being here today and thanks for working with us. We are only here for service to you guys. So if you guys didn't have projects, we wouldn't be around. So I, I really thank you guys and we're honored to publish your book. Thanks so much, Matt. It's, it's great meeting you and uh, congratulations on uh, putting out a great book. Yeah. Thanks for hosting, Ross. Pleasure. Thank thanks, you, Matt. Matt. That's Matt Holt from Matt Holt Books, the publisher of Good Comes First. And now we're going to go to somebody who's been waiting an awfully long time, <laughs> but I have heard he's a wonderful guest. And so we are so thrilled to have 
Paul LaRue joining us. He's an author, he's a business consultant, a thought leader, and he's Upwards Leader, capital U, capital P, Words Leader, and also U.S. Foods. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Ross, thank you so much for having me. And Chris and Mark, congratulations. This is awesome. Thank you, Paul. We appreciate your help, Paul. Paul and I have known each other a long time, mostly on social. And um, I felt kind of selfishly blessed when your business brought you out to Colorado. And uh, that was two years ago? That was a month before the world went upside down. Oh, yeah, that <laughs> pandemic-y thing. Yep. So That's we're thrilled to be able to periodically see you face-to-face -face and, and share some good meals with you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, too, getting to know you and Mark over the last year and a half. And I couldn't be more excited for you guys, too. You guys have really nailed it with this book and just happy to be part of it and help you out. If I remember correctly, you have a review that's already up on your on your website. Yeah, I, I yeah. did a uh, review on my website and uh, that went up. And then, uh, yeah, exactly. And I just uh, really couldn't say anything more about uh, what Chris and Mark have done with this book. They have just... For me, being in the restaurant and hospitality business, I love the fact that you bring it to pretty much the brass tacks. It's direct, but it's also compassionate. You can just see the interwovenness of that message throughout the entire tone. Talk a little bit about how um, you would apply it, and, and you probably already are in a lot of ways, but how you would apply it in the hospitality industry. Yeah, I think maybe just a little bit of a backdrop, too. I think a lot of people look at the hospitality and the restaurant industry as, you know, well, you cook, you serve, you clean, and it's pretty easy. But when you think about our, our industry is, is we produce on demand, and it's a very short time frame. You know, somebody comes in, you can't forecast if you get a, if you get a crowd. So trying to balance that forecasting and having the right amount of staff, not too much, not too little, and then being able to produce something in a very short time frame and an industry that has typically very, very thin margins on average 5% profit margin. So the stress that restaurant operators have is, is very high at any time. And obviously these last two years have actually exacerbated it. But even before that, uh, recognizing that, you know, culture is really what a restaurant operator needs to be successful. And, you know, Mark and Chris, what I love and the, and the one thing that really resonated with me in the book is that shift from industrial age thinking to social age thinking and having our operators, you know, the, the people that I, that I work with being able to think about, it's not about you at the end of the day. Yes, it's your business, but it's about your customers and about your employees. And, you know, there's still a lot of longevity in the restaurant business. So what they've learned has been pretty much generational from what they were told 25, 30, 40 years ago. And so they still hold those things to be true. And the challenge is you have a somewhat misogynistic industry, not overall, but still a lot of that in the industry. And yet our industry has never been more diverse than what it is and has really been probably one of the more diverse industries. So how do you meet the needs of your employees and your customers and changing that shift and being able to help people understand that, you know, seeing it apart from what you're trying to do with the pressure that's on you as a manager or an operator and trying to get away from thinking about yourself and your little world to those that are around you and who you influence. That's really where I think this book comes in handy and plays to what I've been talking about for years. Well, and if I can, if I can jump in, one of the things that, that I've appreciated about your work as a consultant 
in at least recently in, in our exposure, mostly on the restaurant side. Restaurants are not easy businesses to run and the margins are thin, 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 thin. And if you think about over the years, those businesses, those restaurants that have always had great employees who hung out, who felt like this was their business too, who mm -hmm. treated customers with a little bit more, uh, Nicole talked about authenticity, kind of being real and being human. Uh, I'll bet you've seen that over the years. I have. And I think the one thing that I hear the best operators, the ones that have the best culture, whether they're a one unit, you know, mom and pop operation or whether they're, you know, a, a big regional chain is they treat their staff like family. We think about the restaurant industry. It's a very social atmosphere. You know, you have people dining around a table, eating very social engagement. And then you have the, the, the servers and the bartenders and everything. And there's a lot of social activity. And so a good business person who owns a restaurant who can tap into that and say, I want my staff to feel the way I want my guests to feel. Every single one of them, for the most part, when they think about their staff as family, that changes the whole dynamic of really what separates a decent restaurant culture to a spectacular restaurant culture, because they put that family, that good of a family, first and foremost in everything they do. What you said is so true because and I never really thought about it this way until I've seen a lot of business owners being interviewed about how the pandemic and the different rules have affected their business. And by far, it's the restaurant owners that seem most upset by having to let go of people and and cut back. It's like they're losing a family member. They felt almost like they were responsible for that employee's well-being of themselves and their spouse or their children in a sense and I, I it just was a totally different from the sort of well we've had to let go this division here or we've got to cut these it, it was very personal and and it, it, that's something that's that you don't see so much anymore is a lot of times people at the top who own a business are are fairly in in the, in the corporate world are fairly removed from the people whose lives they make decisions that affect and to see people like literally like crying about i had to let go of two employees today it, it, it's like two members of my family and and so i i think what you're saying is i've observed it over the last year and a half and i guess i never thought about it before in that way you're so spot on, Ross, because, uh, you know, when COVID happened, myself and a few teammates across the country, we actually were tasked with understanding all the COVID relief bills. So we had thousands and thousands of consults to help, you know, restaurant operators get that money and stay in business. But those that had to let people go or even furlough people, you're absolutely right. The, the, the stress and the pain and, and, you know, like it was actually their own family member that they had to make these difficult decisions. And some of them even sacrificed their own benefit of not taking a pay for all of last yeah. year and even into this year to make sure that they had money to keep somebody employed. And, and that to me says that there's a compassion in, 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 their, in their approach to running a restaurant and they see the bigger picture. Yes, they have to execute. Yes, they have to serve timely. They have to please a customer, but they see the whole thing as not an you know, either or, either I do this or I can have a good culture. They see it as the whole package of if I do this, everything else will fall into place. But I've got to treat my employees like that family uh, member first and foremost. And then 
you know, that's that's really to me the uh, the thing that comes through quite a bit is you just feel that compassion, you feel that emotion that comes through. Paul, if I can ask a, a question, and I know we're running out of time, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sorry, Ross. Oh, hey, I'm here all day. <laughs> so we're hearing a lot of let's call them horror stories in the in the restaurant world, in the in restaurant and bar world. Um, employees that are not paid very much money, needing to serve as sergeant at arms or sheriff, uh, enforcing mask mandates, checking vaccination records, and. Most people, I assume that that's going okay, but then we hear, and here's where the horror start horror story part comes in. We hear about the hostess in New York who was who was beaten beaten by for demanding to see um, proof of vaccination, and yeah. and um, and 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 that's on top of everything that that servers and hostesses and four people in the restaurant industry have dealt with for years, you know. Um, no guaranteed income, you know, working for tips, long hours on their feet all day, um, uh, kind of a paternal relationship in a lot of cases. Uh, I, won't, I, won't, I won't use the M word that you used because I don't have any firsthand knowledge of that like you do, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's a tough industry, right? And so as we were writing Good Comes First, there were always two industries in the back of our mind, uh, hospitality, restaurants, and healthcare, both from our perspective in need of uh, so, some disruption. Yes. And, and so when you're reading Good Comes First, were you, and we're finally getting to the question, were, were you reading that going, oh, I can't say that to a restaurant guy? Or were you saying, hell yes, that's exactly what the restaurant guy needs to hear? Which, which, which side of the fence were you on or were you uh, straddling that two by four over the top? I always come to come to the conclusion that I'm remiss to, to hold back anything with a restaurant operator. Now, your approach to how to do it has to be well thought out and everything, too. So timing, approach, getting them to uh, to get to that point where they can be perceptive. But if I don't say anything like that and say this is what you need to do, I'm doing a huge disservice. And in some ways, I'm even complicit. With, with them continuing on the path they're doing, they're going. So you definitely have to bring this up. And I think overall, even with the panelists before me, we're, we're in an age where we've got to be bolder about this and we've got to call it out respectfully, obviously, but we've got to be able to, to let people know this can't continue anymore and you have to go ahead and, and make some changes. And because the, the population, the marketplace of employees is shifting as well as the customers. And so if you want to if you want to be a sustainable business, your sustainability is not necessarily everything you do for the planet, which is a part of it. sustainable regarding people that you deal with every day, your customers, as well as your employees. And then going back to some of the horror stories you talk about, Mark, you know, it's also making sure that your employees know that you have they have you have their back every single yes. moment. Yes. And we don't need every customer in the restaurant. Some customers we nope, thank you, but you're probably best to go somewhere else and everything. And when an employee knows that, then they'll they'll be able to, to not feel like they're betrayed. I bet you that that employee in New York was pretty much set on an island to fend for themselves. And uh, it's, a, it's a collaborative teamwork. That's the only way it can happen. But that operator, that that CEO, that operating person in a restaurant has got to be able to to tell their employees, I've got your back. We're in this together and, and we'll do what needs to be 
to be done for our for our good, basically. Well, I, I, you know, the other thing that bothers me about that is these employees who probably aren't making a lot of money and have their hands full working really hard. And now they have to go up and stand next to somebody to get the vac. Like, they, if they end up getting COVID because of this assignment where they actually have to go up and physically, you know, show me the card and all this stuff. And it's it's really, you know, the state's putting an unfair burden on, on you know, people who are, are hardly getting by as it is. It's like, oh, by the way, add this to your job requirement because mm-hmm. you're you're the frontline worker. It's on you. Yeah, but one of one of the things that I've noticed is if if you have a good culture mm-hmm. and you put that out as your reputation and your brand, you that's going to be the difference of attracting the staff that are like, yeah, I know that I'm going to have to do that, but also I know that my boss is going to have my back and we'll be able to do that. And so, you know, that attracts them too, you know. And if you don't if you have that reputation of not training your staff or, you know, putting them out to the wolves so to speak, you're going to you're going to have those uh, negative results and people who love being in food service people who love being in healthcare they're in that for a reason regardless of pay regardless of the day-to-day stress that just comes organically in those industries but working for the right culture and knowing that my good is always at the best interest of the company regardless of whatever work i have to do and being able to have them understand the big picture will will definitely go a long way in being able to you know mitigate a lot of that uh, that overcoming, you know, the uh, the things that people are hesitant to come to the restaurant industry for right now, those can be changed just by being that good operator, that good owner that has that culture. And so that's that's the difference between people leaving the restaurant industry like we've seen in June and people being attracted to that. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Paul. Appreciate you uh, hanging in till we got to you. Um, it's great to talk to you. I look forward to reading your blog a lot more and uh, I'm sure Chris and Mark are thrilled that you could join us as, as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure Paul, thank you, sir. Yep. Chris, Mark, take care. Good luck this week. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. And we have one more guest here. If you guys can stay on for a few more minutes, uh, just joining us, Ms. Tamara McCleary. Welcome. Hey, hello. <laughs> you, you had you had an afternoon that wasn't expected huh no i did i well gosh we should be so used to the unexpected by now right uh yeah so i heard you guys talking about covid which is always interesting but um yeah i'm at school so contact tracing identified me as having had contact with someone probably in a classroom who was diagnosed with COVID. So I had to stop by um, the school health services. Before, and I was like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be here talking to you guys, but um, I'm all good. Um, well, we're so glad yeah, you're so, here. So Tamara is a global tech CEO. And um, tell us a little bit about your company. Yeah. So Thulium is, is uh, the company and we do uh, an awful lot of work in social media in the B2B and enterprise space. So we really work with our clients on uh, messaging and marketing campaigns and, you know, right message, right client, right platform, um, you know, doing an awful lot of data and analytics, um, you know, because nowadays 
really to be as sophisticated as we can be with making sure that our message reaches an audience that's interested, um, you have to do data and analytics. It's no longer what does your gut think? Um, because as we know, with culture, just because we think something or we feel something, it doesn't mean that someone else does because that's, that's what diversity of, of thought is, is that not everybody receives messages in the same way. And so we can't always treat people the way we want to be treated. We need to treat them the way they want to be treated. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, and Tamara has been a, a oh, dear friend. Oh, I left friend you speechless. For... I'm not used to doing that. <laughs> Tamara, Tamara has been a dear friend. Again, started on social. And then because we're both in the, in the Denver area, we were able to connect with some other local kind of speakers and writers and consultants, um, which continues to this day. Um, but but it's, it's always been a delight to, to kind of think back, if I may, Tamara, to you and I having a very similar role in doing training. And, and that's, that's an interesting life. Right. And it's and it's often I think one of the insights I had from 30 years of training others is that sometimes the culture isn't going to support what we're teaching. Sometimes the culture simply is not going to let any differences of opinion about how and when to really enter in. And it's like, well, what are you paying me to, to train all your leaders for? So it's it's really been immensely gratifying to watch Thulium grow and to watch the impact you're having with some major Fortune 100 companies. Yeah, you know, it is exciting to see the organization grow. And if you remember right, Chris, I brought you in from the beginning to um, meet with us and our people and our directors to make sure that we were set on the right path. Um, because culture to me is the very most important thing. And actually culture is the reason I wanted to start my own company because I've worked in organizations that had a toxic, sick culture. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you that the culture of where you spend the bulk of your, your day, you know, if you're working folk like me, really makes or breaks your experience. Um, yeah. It affects everything from your self-esteem to, um, you know, your mental health. <laughs> health big time and uh you know i think it's just we don't value it enough and you know i think it's interesting you know now that i'm in a role of a senior leadership position is that i think more senior leaders need to, to understand that productivity is directly related to employee mental health um and if your people are feeling supported and um uplifted and encouraged and valued um, and whatever the role is within the organization, if they can understand how their role positively contributes to these wonderful outcomes for clients and customers, you know, um, I, th I think it is directly correlative to your business growth. And I think a lot of times we think of culture as being fluffy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know, it is, but you know what, we're human beings and fluffy is important to us. Um, and I think that we, you, you, we can measure it. So it's not entirely fluffy because obviously if we can measure it, we can manage it. And so I think that it's um, vitally important and I've always felt it was important. And that's why we brought you in when we did at the beginning. 
Well, Tamara, you were one of the first people we interviewed for Good Comes First because of your insights into culture and and not just culture, but culture leadership. And you said something that's in that's in Good Comes First that says, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically today's leaders must genuinely care about the people they serve. That that it can't just be all about numbers and results. We we actually have to show human caring. So touch on that just for a moment. And and not just uh, within your own company, certainly, but as Chris said, you're working with some really big companies and you're starting some really important conversations with those companies. You're helping them lead those conversations. How important is that aspect of culture? It's huge, Mark. And you know, I'm learning every day. I, I'm going to embrace beginner's mindset every day because, um, you know, I, talk about an evolution of growth. I, I feel like I'm on this like uh, baptism by fire trajectory. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, the level of complexity um, dramatically increases every time you begin to work with another organization because, you know, you can have culture clash. Right. So, you know, we might value a certain culture within our organization, but we might gain a client that doesn't have the same or similar culture. And so, you know, you really do have to navigate some pretty complex waters when you're looking at, you know, especially big companies have a much different culture just just by virtue of the fact that the geography is much larger versus a smaller company. And obviously, we can do things with our employees and our teams that large companies struggle with because they are so large. Um, but I think what it is, is that it's good for us. It's good for our team and our team members to encounter different cultures than the one we've set up. I think it's um, arrogant of us to say, oh, we've got the culture that you should have. Our culture works for us and it works for our people. And we're working on it all the time. I'm really proud of where we are. And I have to say, I have had very little to do with that. I think that the folks that we have um, have contributed a great deal to the culture of our organization. Um, because we're smaller, I do think that we think of ourselves as kind of a, a family in a way that, yeah. you know, we celebrate birthdays, we celebrate um we celebrate the wins, but we also support one another in the losses. And that's personal loss as well. Because yeah. as you said, Mark, I believe the human being is really important. Um, and I think maybe it's about, I, I want to be the kind of leader that I didn't have in the past. Um, maybe I learned from all those other leaders how not to be. Um, and I want people to feel seen, heard, and valued because I know what it's like to not feel that. And, you know, I think working with big organizations, it's a really wonderful opportunity to give back and help them to feel seen, heard, and valued because you're working with folks sometimes that are in that sandwich. And what I mean by the sandwich is when you have someone who has a leadership position, but they are reporting to a, a level higher, yet they have reports reporting up to them. They're in the middle of this sandwich. And what's really tough for those people in that middle management is the fact that they are getting these edicts from on top of this is what everybody has to do. And they're getting all the rumblings from the bottom. And they are the least valued person in the organization. 
And yeah. so I always feel like for us with our teams is to realize we need to treat those middle management people as if they are royalty because they have the hardest jobs and they're trying to keep the peace. They're trying to keep things going. They're not the most popular person from below or the top. And, you know, I think that, you know, is there struggles when you're working with big organizations? Well, for sure. If I said there wasn't and we would all know I'm lying and I don't want to lie. So there are struggles, but I also think that within the struggle, within that grist, there is also an, a huge reward because the relationships that you develop are really uh, not only just tangible in that moment, but they're long-term relationships. Um, I know for myself and for the folks that work at Thulium, we've made some friendships with our clients and um the friendliness and the caring is that human element. And we spend how many hours of our day doing work? If we're not building human connection and relationship, I say we're wasting a huge part of our lives. And we cannot compartmentalize and say, oh, gee, during these work hours, I'm not going to foster these deep relationships. Um, I guess you could do that, but if you did, I do think that you're missing out on the joy of living because it's not work and life anymore. It's just life. What's well, the next tech challenge, I guess, that's going to shake up our businesses, disrupt things, and, and kind of maybe reshape the relationship between employees and employers or between customers and and then the retailers, what, what's, what do you see coming along next that's going to be a, in the technology area that's going to make a big change, do you think? Uh, it's a good question, Ross. I think, um, I think we're in the middle of a huge shift. I think we're seeing that with, you know, I mean, I, and I don't want to toss buzzwords out there. So you guys bear with me because we have to mention artificial intelligence only because what we're doing now with communication, whether it's with employees or it's with customers, it was we're doing an awful lot of um, automation. We're doing an awful lot of data and analytics. As far as on the customer end, you know, people are wanting, you know, everything personalized to me, right? I want everything to be relevant. So how does that happen? That's not happening by a human being. It would take too long. So that's happening through machines. Um, and I think that you know, one of the challenges that we have to ask ourselves constantly is, is it worth it? What are we giving away in exchange for convenience? And I think that, you know, we need to start asking those questions now because everyone rails against the machine going, you know, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. But in the same breath, they say, I want this, I want that. So, yep. you know, we have to get clear on what it is that we want. And whether or not we are sacrificing too much to get all of this personalization that we say we want. Chris, you were going to say something. Well, I think, I think what's interesting is that there's a, and I'm geeky enough, and you and I have talked about this, Deborah, because we both have kind of a geek brain that's, that's intrigued at some of the software, AI, how can this make business easier? How can I get better data to make these decisions about, you know, products, services, time of day, all that kind of stuff. And, and it's the balance between cool tech, 
which enables authentic human connection. And that's the thing that is a bit of a challenge, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think we can abdicate our responsibility for a relationship by, you know, using this cool tech to say that we've connected, but we really haven't, um, you know, and I think it's yeah. good for all of us to do a little check-in and go, maybe I shouldn't send a text message only on somebody's birthday. Maybe I should actually call them. Um, and, you know, some of the things I think of that we might be giving up, I think that we're seeing when you asked Ross, your great, your, your power packed question, by the way, of what technology is really <laughs> well, we could spend hours on this, but, you know, you think about the communication vehicle in general. I mean, when we talk about culture, you can't talk culture without talking communication. And right now we have a serious lack of trust. We have a lack of trust in organizations. We have a lack of trust with authority. We have a lack of trust of science. We have a lack of trust of, uh, of the expert. Who's the expert now? Um, yeah. And with communication the way it is now, and people only really reading headlines and not actually reading the entire article. We have a lot of armchair experts who are passing misinformation. And I think that, you know, if you look at where we're headed in the future with technology, we need to take a step back because there's a lot of problems. And if you look, I don't mean to be US centric, um, but if, you know, it's what I know best because I live here in the United States, we have a terrible problem with trust. And it's no longer the communication of facts. Nobody believes facts anymore because what we've lost, what exactly Chris and Mark are talking about, and that is we have lost the heart, the human connection, that value, that trust. People do not communicate on, you know, what is truth out there. Now it's debatable what truth is. Um, so I think that we've lost that human connection, that human peace. And I think a lot of this distrust, a lot of this misinformation is directly related to our reliance upon technology to do our communication for us. Amen. Well, you're, you're so right. Uh, right before I ask you a really, I'm going to put you on the spot, but first I want to say everybody knows my pillow guy is, is the source of great information. So I just want to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, couldn't resist. Um, so, Tamara, you you are known for your authority in the tech space. You are also a female, and you and I have talked over a favorite brown beverage or two about how it's been a struggle sometimes. And you and my wife, who's a, a, a female in the aerospace industry, share this challenge that. I am female, but I'm also incredibly articulate and knowledgeable, and I and I uh, uh, I'm vulnerable, and I'm willing to admit when I don't know something, but I know a lot, and and I say all that because, as you know, in the book, we talk a lot about boomer male syndrome, old white guys who are kind of stuck in their ways, autocratic, command and control. Um, they they hire, uh, train, mentor people who look and talk and think just like them. So good for you, I'm going to assume, means more diversity, more women in leadership roles, more women in knowledge roles, influence roles. Talk about that and how your version of good might be different than me as, a, as an old white guy. And, and you might define your role within good differently. Um, talk to us just for a minute about that. Wow. 
This, I told you I was going to put you on the spot. The most <laughs> right, I, and everybody should know. I was I was given no questions ahead of time. <laughs> like I show of course up, not. Click, click on the link. Um, no, I didn't have any questions ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and thank yeah, thanks Ross for the zinger too. I really appreciate that. Not yeah, too, but uh, I was just thinking this is a great question for. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, you know. First of all, I would say, since I'm going, uh, uh, the articulate part, we can, you know, completely strike from the record. That's probably Mark's wife, not me, who's the articulate one. But um, I would say that um, it is tough, I think, um, especially in the tech space. And, and, you know, what I found, too, is, you know, first of all, in technologies, in the tech space, you can know something today and tomorrow it's completely, you know, something else come along. so yeah. the speed the pace is huge um and well that's why i'm back in school right so i didn't want to rest on my laurels and think oh, okay i already know everything there is no not a chance in fact i knew there was so much i didn't know that you know i i went back to school so you know, it's a lot to juggle, I think, at 56 yeah. to be in a classroom setting with a lot of younger people. Um, but I say it's kind of my anti-dementia formula because I'm creating new neural pathways. <laughs> but um, it's it's challenging and it's hard, but it's good because I think good for me means, um, you know, being authentic and true to know that what we think we know now is our best guess, but we really don't know. We have to constantly question our assumptions. We have to listen to arguments and things people say that we don't like, that we makes us uncomfortable, that is contrary to what we believe, because if we don't do that, then our knowledge will never grow. It will only stay where it's at. And I think that sometimes, you know, what's really tough I, I see for us now is we're in this culture of cancel, cancel culture. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, what I think it's terrible about that is you read writers like, you know, um, Orwell, right? Like the times that they were writing, they could just speak their mind and say whatever it is that they wanted to say, but you can't do that nowadays because, you know, people are in fear that they're going to get canceled for having a point of view that goes against the grain or the majority doesn't like. And I think that, that we are in an age of um, unenlightenment, unfortunately, uh, we are in an age where people don't believe scientists. We're in an age where people don't want to hear, you know, what facts are. People are more interested in being entertained. People are more interested in spreading gossip. People are more interested in uh, things that are not about finding out what's true or not true. It's more, let's jump into our epistemic bubbles and only surround ourselves with people who think just like we do, agree just like we do. And so even the algorithms are only putting us together with other people just like ourselves. And Mark, to your point, this is dangerous. 
you know, so it's not only the boomer male who's, you know, maybe only thinking in this one way, we are setting up the next generations to only be talking to and friending with people just like themselves. And we don't realize how dangerous that is, because we're not being challenged, we're not we're not even able to handle people who have a difference of opinion without wanting to cancel them out. And I think that's yeah. really scary. You know what's most scary? It's almost better. In other words, less chance of having been canceled if you committed a, a violent felony 15 years ago than if you tweeted something offensive 15 years ago you're more likely to get canceled for tweeting something that was offensive. Now, I'm not saying tweet something offensive, but we've gotten to the point where we've lost that respect for free speech. And, you know, I'll defend to the death what you have to say, even if I totally disagree with it, which is what people used to say when I when I was growing up. Um, but it, we've kind of gotten away from that to where it's it's. It's sort of we all want to nod our heads with people who think the same as us rather than listen to somebody and talk has gotten to be violence and we we kind of lost our way a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting yeah. because there's a there's a I think a dependence upon the technology. And so we look at these platforms and Elisa's just still listening and 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 providing feedback which I really really love. And it's, it's to some great degree, the more we depend upon platforms that monitor, that have algorithms that are using AI to sell us crap as opposed to facts take precedence as opposed to inflammatory lies, et cetera. And there's, there's all kinds of different degrees. I get it. But when we're not really listening to the science as a geek, the data is undeniable. And, and there's a way out of this mess. And, and the vicious virus is going to continue to do vicious variants. But there's a way out of this. And we can get back to looking people eye to eye and learning what we have in common and learning what we disagree with. But if there's a foundation of respect, then I don't, I don't have to cancel your ideas. I don't have to discount, demean you. And I have hope that we can get there. What a positive thing. I mean, it's almost like we should end on that note. It's so positive. Um, I, I just got to say, Tamara, it's great to talk to you. I don't know if we've ever talked before, um, but you were one of the first people that I followed long before I discovered this live streaming thing. And now that seems to be where most of my network, but back when I was a HR graduate student, I was following you and I was following Mark. And um, I think Mark was the first person from social media who actually reached out to me and set and set up an in-person conversation. And that really that was a wonderful time on Twitter. Um, that's when people were really having interaction. And of course, Mark being being Mark took it to the next level and was so generous um, to set up a, a meeting. But you guys were putting out great stuff and you were interacting with people. And now it's all sort of on autopilot and, and moved by outrage. And um, I, that's why I love these kind of platforms anyway, because um, we're having real discussions again right now. And it's, it's great to connect with you. And 
Um, thanks so much for joining us, Tamara, and thanks for supporting uh, the book. I I can't think of two more amazing men to support than Mark and Chris. Your hearts are golden. You're really, really there for people. And um, when I think of good, I think of Mark and I think of Chris. And so it's an honor always to serve anywhere next to you two. And thank you so much for letting me have a little bit of conversation with all of you and Ross. Thanks for, for uh, stimulating the conversation as well. <laughs> Thanks for being Tamara, here. Tamara, thank you so much. Thank you. Great to see you. So that is Good Comes First. That's the book. You can get it at goodcomesfirst.com. Easy to remember, goodcomesfirst.com. Um, and it's doing well. It's the first day out. I've seen you on some of the bestseller charts on Amazon. You can get the book in audiobook. You can get it in hardcover. You can get it in digital format. The Kindle version is available. Um, will we be seeing it? Where else can, can people get it? Obviously, we want people to go to Amazon, pick it up today. And um, again, you can do that by going to Good Comes First. Dot com or you can head on over to Amazon just put good comes first into the search bar it'll come right up and again there's three editions you can get a hold of um, as we wrap up final thought on on this experience of of the book and what you'd want somebody to uh, to think about who is considering getting the book well for me Ross I'll tell you people like Tamara uh, people like uh, a gentleman named Mark Levy, Matt Holt, um, uh, many of our friends, many of our CEO friends who we interviewed for the, for the book, um, they've, they've actually formed this. They, they inspired us to focus. Um, and Chris, you made this point so well in, in, in your last comments, uh, when, uh, at the end of our, our time with Tamara, there is hope, there is good. And, and we've lost that and, and we, we need to get it back. And, and we know, Chris and I know, right, Chris, everybody's definition of good is going to be different. That's how it must be. That's how it should be. But if we get people that are focused on accomplishing the same mission and, and are, are steadfast in, in their, in their willingness to work hard to achieve that mission, and then we give them some guardrails or some ground rules that, that keeps them civil, that, that, you know, despite all the divisiveness and the polarization and everything going on in the world right now, we can be a contagious pocket of excellence. We can stay on the right path until we accomplish that mission. And, you know, given that we're in the gig economy, maybe this is the only time we ever work together. Maybe after we accomplish that mission, maybe we drift apart because that's how the economy is going. That's okay, but we leave knowing that we worked really well together and we focused on the good and we and we aligned to the agreed upon values. And then when we go somewhere else, as Chris said at the very beginning of our now two hours together, now when people leave, they take that with them. And now we have more contagious pockets of excellence and one person, one team, one company at a time, we can make a difference. Well, and, and I'll add to that, that, that our focus was to take the complex culture management, right? And to try and, and give leaders, readers, some simple kinds of North Stars, right? 
And, and our foundational principle is make respect as important as results in your organizations. And all leaders can do that. It's going to take a different mindset. It's going to take different conversations. It's going to require them to step back from monitoring minute by minute or hourly performance because you got plenty of folks that can do that for you. It's about relationships and having people feel validated and valued. And that's what is going to help us get to a much safer place, a much more fun place, much quicker. All right. That is Mark Babbitt on the left, Chris Edmonds on the right. The book is Good Comes First. Again, you can get it at goodcomesfirst.com. I'm Ross Brand from Livestream Universe. Thanks for being here for the launch party. Thanks to all our great guests. And get the book, Good Comes First. Let's make it a number one bestseller. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Ross. Thank you, Ross.